Welcome to the Alcohol Minimalist Podcast. I'm your host, Molly Watts. If you want to change your drinking habits and create a peaceful relationship with alcohol, you're in the right place. This podcast explores the strategies I use to overcome a lifetime of family alcohol abuse, more than 30 years of anxiety and worry about my own drinking, and what felt like an unbreakable daily drinking habit. Becoming an alcohol minimalist means removing excess alcohol from your life so it doesn't remove you from life. It means being able to take alcohol or leave it without feeling deprived. It means to live peacefully, being able to enjoy a glass of wine without feeling guilty and without needing to finish the bottle. With science on our side, we'll shatter your past patterns and eliminate your excuses. Changing your relationship with alcohol is possible. I'm here to help you do it. Let's start now. Well, hello and welcome or welcome back to the Alcohol Minimalist Podcast. With me, your host, Molly Watts, coming to you from, oh, it's very hot, Oregon still, very warm. Uh, been in the 90s this weekend and and we're unfortunately caught in a cycle here in the, at least in the Portland area, where we're getting a lot of wildfire smoke coming up from the south again. And so we've got this kind of haze and air quality is not very good. It isn't as bad as it was a couple of years ago, but it's not great. It's not fun. Um, and I think it's supposed to be on the cool down here. But again, you know, it's summer and I'm I'm loving it. I know that the rains are coming soon. And so I'm trying to soak up all this this warm weather while I still can. Hey, this is one of the last episodes in the summer content series. I'm sort of toying around with the idea of doing one more. I really only had this last one or this week is the last one scheduled. So we'll see. Well, you'll have to tune in next week to see what I come up if I decide to. So this particular episode, I'm just delighted to share with you. Uh, Molly Kimball, who was on the show this year, uh, was very popular and she was she is responsible for a program down in Louisiana called Alcohol Free for 40. And it's it's been very successful. And we talked about that a lot. I'll link her episode that I talked with Molly in the sh- in the show notes. She has her own really successful uh, podcast. And she did a great episode talking all about the health and nutrition aspects of alcohol with 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 an MD. And that's the episode that I'm sharing with you today. So this is from Fueled with Molly Kimball. And uh, I know you're really going to enjoy it. I hope you're having a great summer. I hope you're enjoying the month of August. I have been, you know, traveling a bit and spending time outdoors, spending time with my family. And if you didn't hear it, uh, I had a a webinar last week and I have opened Making Peace with Alcohol. So I would love to have you check it out. You can learn more over at my website, www.mollywatts.com. Again, here is Molly Kimball from her Fueled podcast. This episode is called The Science of Alcohol on Our Mind, Body, and Spirit. I'll see you next week. So Dr. Garbutt, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, I'll I'll let you do your intro um, and kind of give us the the full scope of of your affiliations and what you do, what you're currently doing, and what your research has been in the past. So my name is uh, Dr. J. C. Garbutt. Uh, for uh, 
majority of my career, about 45 years, I was a professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and a research scientist at the uh, Bowles Center for Alcohol Studies, also uh, Chapel Hill. And my work has really been focused on uh, both understanding sort of the biology of alcoholism, alcohol use disorders, and also figuring out ways to help people uh, move forward and, and get treatment for alcohol problems, including the use of medications. And, and my primary interest over the last 20-something years has really been developing medications for alcohol use disorders to help people make progress in, in their health. And you've studied a lot of the effects of alcohol. So these things that we're aware of or we know these things happen, um, I'm hoping that you can help us understand the why. And I think when we, there's a lot of myths around alcohol that you and I will be talking about. And then a lot of things that it, it truly has a, it has a physical effect that in some cases we're not even aware that um, sometimes what we're turning to alcohol to help us with is actually harming us. Mm-hmm. Um, so one in particular that we had talked about briefly before is stress and anxiety. And that's something that I've talked with our listeners before on this podcast of a lot of times we, you know, we turn to alcohol as a stress reduction. I've had a a rough day, a long day, a stressful situation. I'm going to have that glass of wine or pour that cocktail. Um, But that's not really, it's not really something that helps us reduce stress. So tell us more about that. Well, it's a great question and it's a very important one. Uh, Alcohol, which is this very simple little molecule that does all these very complicated things in the brain. And we're just continuing to learn much more about it. But one of the things we know is that, um, and intriguingly, is that alcohol has an acute, has sort of an anti-stress effect or an anti-anxiety effect. So people do feel kind of more relaxed, less tense, uh, less stressed as the alcohol is being consumed. And that, as you you mentioned, after work or coming back and having a few glasses of wine or feeling, feeling those kind of positive feelings. The thing we've learned really over the last 20 to 30 years is that at the same time alcohol is doing this acutely, it also can be activating stress systems in the brain. So the following day, our stress systems are actually more active. And what happens then over time, uh, as weeks or months or years go by, these stress systems can become quite active such that one may be drinking in order to calm down the stress systems they've activated with alcohol. And what people find many times is they have a period of time away from alcohol for a while. They feel, oh, I'm feeling more relaxed. I'm feeling uh, not as as irritable, not as stressed, not as tense. Uh, I didn't know I could feel this way. I thought maybe only alcohol can make me feel that way. And we now know this sort of biologically, that that it's activating these systems in the brain. And that's, uh, so it's kind of a, a push-pull thing. Oh, I feel acutely relaxed, but then over time, it's making things worse. And am I right that it almost like it lowers our, our threshold, our ability to handle these stressful situations? So if something is a, a level three of a stressor, it can make us almost perceive it as a seven, eight, nine, ten. 10? Uh, that would be one way to put it. Yeah, it, it. So we think about stress and how our brain reacts to stress. Uh, we have systems in our brain that get activated in a way. So alcohol is sensitizing those systems. And so 
when we have a stressor that would say activate it to one level after drinking over time, it may activate it to, you know, three or four times where it, where it was. So this is our fifth year doing our alcohol free for 40 challenge here in New Orleans and excited that we're taking it throughout the state for this 2020. And when I first started it, um, it was 2016, um, right after Mardi Gras was our first time. But in 2015, as I had pitched it to my editors at the newspaper, hey, is this something we can do? So let me do my own self-experiment. And so I had gone in, I'd asked my doctor to do all the lab markers that we talk about. And I said, let me give myself a week. And I wanted to see, also wanted to see what kind of changes are going to be in one week. But what I noticed that was, so I kind of did myself as my own experiment. I thought if I'm going to be asking our community to do this, I need to see how it feels. And so, you know, we always have a lot going on. There's always a lot of things that, you know, everybody's got a lot on their plate. Well, one thing that had been happening um, over time, I've been doing TV segments for years. At, at this point, it's been 10 years, 12 years weekly. But at this period of time that I was doing the, my own little self-experiment, I had been experiencing when I would do a TV segment live or when I would be in front of a group of people presenting, something I'd been doing for like, I mean, 15, almost 20 years presenting to people, I was having a very high reaction to the, to the stress. And I was, you know, sometimes you get those jitters right when you first start a, a presentation. And I think that's normal, but you can kind of dial it back and you get control of it. I felt like it was rising and I wasn't able to, to bring it down like that. And even on live TV in front of a large room of people or whatever it was. And I thought, wow, but I thought it was just, you know, it's kind of one of those things where we can always excuse it to something else. We always put it on something else. I was like, well, gosh, I have so many, so many other things going on, or I have a lot in my mind, or I have a lot that I'm, you know, trying to fit in and my anxiety is going up. Well, just in that one week that I gave myself to that first step to try that alcohol free, I had several events and I didn't experience that. And I thought, wow, this is a game changer that even in just going, you know, being three days, five days, now seven days into not drinking and being in situations that were eliciting that response to not have it. For me, that was life changing. Well, and that's something we see. And I think even more than I, you know, a lab test or a blood marker are those kind of things people experience like stress, like anxiety, like sleep. Those things, I think, are probably the most sensitive kind of markers of positive change. And people, you know, have a period of time away from alcohol, they realize, oh, I'm feeling different. Oh, maybe I'm less irritable. I'm less anxious. I'm less stressed. Uh, we know that alcohol, in some cases, can actually, you know, contribute to like the onset of, say, panic attacks. And so, when the person gets in an environment like you're describing, people would have been mildly anxious. It could you know, potentially trigger a full-blown panic attack, which is a extremely you know, uncomfortable situation. And it, it, was, it was starting to feel that way. Um, and this isn't something I like, I, I, now I'm putting it here on our podcast, but I would mm-hmm. feel heart racing, my ears roaring, you know, things were starting to like, the, yeah. the room was going down and I'm like, this, this is live TV or like, this is in front of hundreds right. of people. It can't happen. And why, like why now? And so to me, it was a very, that to me was the, the one of this, one of many, but a, a huge um, motivator to say, wow, this is a, a change worth asking our community to try. And that's a lot of the feedback that we've gotten. I think it's important for people as they go through something like an alcohol-free for 40 challenge to pay attention to these things. Do you have recommendations for people of how to how to tune into that? Because I think a lot of times we're so busy in our day, we don't always stop and pay attention to those reactions. Do you have people journal or what's been your experience and how to get people to really notice that? 
Well, I think one is just being aware of uh, of what may be happening if you have a period of time when you say free from alcohol, then just kind of. I mean, journaling could be an idea. I mean, just kind of be aware every so often. Take stock of how you're feeling, what you've noticed about yourself, how's your sleep, how's your interaction with your spouse or your friends or other people. And it's, uh, it's less irritable. I'm less getting less angry. Uh, and uh, so those unawareness, and sometimes people even hear that from people around them in their lives. They'll go, you know, you're, you're less irritable. You're not as, we don't get into arguments as often, or you just, you're calmer. And, so there can be external kind of uh, affirmation of that. And um, so, but I mean, I think however one wants to assess it or look at it, I think uh, kind of take stock of it, either through journaling or just being aware and kind of every so often like, hey, how am I doing? What am I feeling? And, and those, and, hey, I think, are good markers to look at. Um, like you said, they're they're really almost impossible to really accurately measure like you would do, say, lab blood work. But during the 40 days, if someone goes, man, 40 days is a long time. Once we start paying attention to these little micro benefits, it's easier to kind of stay on track. You mentioned sleep. Um, this is one where I think it's another well, look, huge... Can I, let me, can I jump in and say something yeah. here? Because I think yeah, you mentioned yeah, 40 days is a long time. And one thing we know in, in the treatment community, and this is not... Uh, I know this is reaching a lot of people who maybe aren't really what we consider uh, should be getting treatment per se, but is that it's could the one day at a time philosophy is extremely helpful idea to utilize rather than, Oh my gosh, 40 days. I'm never going to get there. No, it's not that it's just all right today. I'm just not going to, I'm not going to drink today. And, and the that before, before one knows it, you know, two weeks go by, three weeks go by and then, then you're there. So that, that, I think that's a useful way to um, sort of think about this phenomenon rather than, Oh my gosh, you know, I can't, can't drink for 40 days. <laughs> right. It's a, it's a, it seems like a giant undertaking. And to that point too, I think as you look at, I'm not going to drink today, like you said, I think kind of putting it, which instead of thinking what you're not going to do, thinking of what you're going to do instead, what's that positive replacement behavior yeah. you're going to do instead of drinking? And also what you're kind of doing for yourself, potentially, and we may get into it more as you say later about some of the health effects, but like you're, doing something positive for your health, positive for your emotions, positive for your relationships. And those are uh, useful things to, uh, to help kind of keep you, keep you motivated. Right. Right. And so, um, so on, on the topic of sleep as being kind of another health benefit, this is one that I think, and even in past years of the, the challenge, people say, Oh, it was so much harder for me to fall asleep at first because they weren't having the alcohol. So tell us about that. Like, how and why does alcohol make it easier for us to fall asleep? But um, explain to us just how it disrupts our sleep patterns. Yeah, well, in a way, it's kind of like with the anxiety that I mentioned earlier, that the initial effects, of course, it is a sedative medication. So if you drink alcohol, you will get sleepy. You can't get sleepy. Of course, you drink more and more, you eventually can could even get into a semi-comatose kind of like state. So it's a very, it's a sedating depressant drug. And right. It's it, like, is someone falling asleep or are they passing out? <laughs> right. Yeah. right. Uh, although alcohol, is, as I mentioned, it's a simple but complicated molecule because when one, at the initial stages of, of consuming the alcohol, it has this kind of activating effect where people feel alert and they're talking more and they may feel this little euphorogenic rush and they just feel, I mean, they, you know that's it, it, that's the cocktail party was all about. Is it's a it's a, quote, a social lubricant. You know people interact more, they have more energy, they do things. 
But then that starts to fade, and then as the consumption level goes up, then the more sedative depressant effects begin to take over. And, you know, some people can use it. Yeah, they, I have a few drinks, then I, I go to bed, and I'm, oh, I'm tired and fall asleep. Well, a lot of times what happens is it's also disruptive to our sleep cycle. And so later on at night, then after a number of hours, uh, sleep may be disrupted. People are more likely to wake up. They're less likely to have total sleep time to have to get into you know deeper stages of sleep uh, and have more restful sleep. So it's it's a sleep disruptor. We know that uh, over time, particularly as one drinks regularly and drinks more heavily, potentially they can become more disruptive to sleep. And so one of the things we see when people <clears throat> have period of you know not drinking, I mean like a few weeks or something like that. But often they will say, wow, I'm sleeping so much better. <laughs> I feel so much more rested. You know, I'm, I'm sleeping longer. I don't wake up as often. So it's that sort of disruptive effect that then has, has begun to dissipate, and they're actually finding their sleep improves. But initially, for a number of days or even a week or so, they may not notice that, and they really have to stick with it over time to really see the full benefit. And I guess at that point, too, looking for other things at – bedtime to help with that transition into sleep that's not alcohol. And so putting your phone away, getting that screen light away, getting out an old-fashioned book, (laughs) you know, things that are going to kind of um, walk you, lead us through that path of relaxation without alcohol. Yeah. And in fact, there's a whole, uh, we call it sleep hygiene. uh, And um, sort of when we work with people, we talk about, oh, they need to improve your sleep hygiene. And there's a whole series of things, and one can look on the internet or get, you know, a, a series of probably, you know, ten to fifteen different things. One could be: don't eat right before you go to bed. You don't eat in the bed. If, you, if you're not sleeping, you don't just lie there in bed and toss and turn. You get up, get out, go do something, and try to come back when you're rested. Keep your room cool. Don't try not to watch television and, you know, st- you know right. emotionally stimulating things. And so there's a whole series of things one can do uh, to help sleep better. But one of the most important things is just a little bit of patience that, you know, particularly from the standpoint of transitioning, say, from alcohol to like not drinking as much alcohol, just takes some time. And one of the things we don't want to do is for people to say, I'm not sleeping, doc, or give me a, a pill. <laughs> because that can be, uh, that has its own uh, problems and its own um, detrimental effects potentially. It can come back to uh, create Almost like trading one vice for another. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, so uh, we it may be a quick fix, but it's also one that comes with some problems. On the note of sleep hygiene, one of the things that I highly recommend is sleeping with your smartphone in the other room. And I put mine just in the bathroom, which is just right around the corner, so I still use it as my alarm. Um, it's it's I can hear it. It's in the other room, but it makes whenever I wake up, I'm not tempted to look at it. I don't see the light from it at night. And also, I think most importantly, when I get into bed, I'm not losing that mind numbing 30 minutes or an hour that a lot of us scroll through our phones um, when we're really not fresh. And so as soon as I put it in the other room and I get in the bed, I'm not tempted to do that. Um, so I think finding finding out what your sleep hygiene is and and like you said, being patient. Um, with you know stress, anxiety, sleep, I think these are some of the ones that are things that we really feel. But I think a side effect of alcohol that we can also, in some ways we don't feel it, in some ways we do, is inflammation. And so can you talk with us about kind of the the systemic 
whole body inflammation that happens. You know, I know that sometimes if we drink a lot, we would, our rings are tight, our eyes are puffy, but that's not all, that's not the only places the inflammation is happening. Well, one of the things I think we found out about alcohol, we've always known is that you know, negative health effects, particularly at the heavy levels of use. Uh, and, and one of the issues of, of it's important to realize is that when alcohol is broken down in the body, the first thing it's broken down to is this thing called acetaldehyde, and that's just a chemical name. But it, uh, it, it, and it's a toxic compound, and uh, it, it, it really damages cells. We think it's, it has carcinogenic properties, uh, and it's very, uh, it's a major player. We think in terms of the negative effects of alcohol. And then the acetaldehyde in turn is broken down to acetic acid vinegar in the body, and that's how alcohol is broken down in the body. But so these these effects, though, uh, they do it. They act, they activate inflammation, they activate negative immune systems, uh, and so we're beginning just beginning to understand sort of the uh, immune effects of alcohol throughout the body, including the brain, and which is a very complicated story, but the, the bottom line is that, yes, it's activation of inflammation, activation of some negative immune responses that affect a variety of, of cellular functions and organ systems throughout our body. Uh, but we've also realized that even lower levels of alcohol can contribute to health problems over time. So we used to think, like I think we said earlier, that... Um, you know, it's been reported you know, that alcohol is a, a positive effect. Small amounts of alcohol are good for your health. You know, that's a, and that's been modified here. And we realize that it mod- small amounts of alcohol can help some things, like such as like the risk of heart attack, the risk of ischemic stroke. But at the same time, small amounts of alcohol can increase from like high blood pressure, risk of breast cancer, cirrhosis of the liver, gastric ulcer, a variety of other cancers. So. When you look at alcohol in the big picture, uh, we are now viewing it as you know more the, the, the negative side of it has kind of emerged more alongside those positive effects. And people have to make decisions and, and, and personal choices about what they what they want to do once they have that knowledge and once they become aware of, of some of these other issues. Do you have um, the stats off the top of your head on breast cancer and the? The correlation with alcohol and increased risk in breast cancer. Well, I, I don't have. I mean, what what we do know is that uh, even small levels of consumption, like one drink a day, there is evidence of uh, some increase of risk. Now, the risk that that increase is small, and I don't have the precise uh, percentage on that. It's small, but it's there. And as the consumption goes up, the risk begins to go up, and so. And this is the case across a number of different, like high blood pressure. But high blood pressure to me is one of the more interesting because over the years I've done these clinical trials, we would have people come in and they would have high blood pressure and they were drinking heavily. And we would you know, work with them. They had an interest in change of drinking. Many of them would reduce their drinking and some of them would even become abstinent. And very often their blood pressure would begin to normalize. Many situations where they actually would get off their blood pressure medicine just because they had changed their drinking habits and their blood pressure, you know, returned to normal. And, uh, and that's so something that, easy that, for people to monitor because yeah. there's blood pressure cuffs everywhere. So it's something. Right. You, yeah. That's yeah. a very straightforward one. I mean, clearly there's also, uh, 
there's what we call essential hypertension, which means a lot of people have just high blood pressure. We don't know why they have it, but they have it. And they need medicine, and it's not going to get better when they stop drinking. And so it's important. To, it's not like stopping drinking is a cure-all for blood pressure. I don't want to give that impression. But it can, it's, a, it's an important factor, and it's one that a lot of times is overlooked. And um, on the breast cancer, I, I did a, a quick search and pulled up the um, uh, Susan G. Komen, and they have a, a bunch of stats around it. And the I, I feel like this was, I feel like it's, I don't want to use the word staggering, but I kind of think so. So um, the pooled analysis from 53 studies shows the relative risk of breast cancer goes up by about 7% for each alcoholic drink consumed. So for every one drink, an increase of 7%. And then those who had two to three drinks per day have a 20% higher risk compared to women who don't drink. Um because of the way that it's highly significant yeah. it's yeah and um so i think you know alcohol of course changes the way that you know our a woman's body metabolizes estrogen and that's um going to play a role in risk of breast cancer so i think to your point of you know there's these mixed messages about the health benefits of alcohol looking at what are your risk you know if your risk is is higher for um breast cancer, if you have hypertension and you don't have any issues with, you know, cholesterol or a history of cardiovascular disease otherwise, and it's probably not the best, best thing for you, you know? And so, but that I, I always say the, the liquor industry and the wine industry have done a great job of telling us how good it is for us. You know? Well, yeah, I mean, we've got this, yeah, we have sort of uh, uh, been under the impression and the medical community sort of was promoting that. It wasn't that long ago that doctors might say, well, have a drink or two yeah. a day. You know, it'll help you. And, um, and it's a very complicated question. Um, and as I said, we're, we're a drinking culture. So we, we like to drink, we, we enjoy drinking and there's not, it's not that alcohol is evil or anything. I'm, it's just that one needs to get a better perspective on I think, the overall health risks and benefits and also these other things we were talking about, how you feel if you drink, say, daily, even if you're only having one or two drinks, as far as your anxiety, as far as your sleep, as far as your ability. So those are things in addition to the sort of like health risks. I think, and that's one of the things with the challenge that we always kind of make sure to say, this isn't about saying that alcohol is bad, but it's helping people kind of evaluate their relationship with it. And a lot of people will use it as a reset. Um, they don't have an intent of going alcohol-free forever, but they're using it kind of as their annual reset to kind of bring things back in check after holidays and things have kind of been, you know, that um, uh, the period of abundance then kind of like, you know, just let me get back to a, a more moderate approach. When we're talking about um, inflammation, you know, you were talking about the, um, the effects there. I think one of this, the um, benefits that we'll hear a lot is that people's kind of general aches and pains, their joints and the stiffness and stuff that all improves. So when we're talking inflammation, we're talking about inflammation that can increase risk for things like, you know, heart disease, um, certain types of cancer, but also sometimes it can be that inflammation someone feels like arthritis, inflammatory arthritis. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think we're, we're just at just beginning to understand how alcohol and the immune system sort of uh, interact and are, are but one thing we do know is that when people do reduce their alcohol use or have periods of time when they're not drinking, they a lot of these things can can get better. 
And it's something that I would encourage people to do if you're if you're doing the challenge. One of the things that we do is we take a close up photo of people's face. And this is someone, if, even if you're listening and you're not in our area to come to our actual kickoff event, but you're doing it on your own, easy. Get someone to take a really, and like a tight shot of your face, like one you don't want to share with anybody. So you can see your skin texture, the, the circles under your eyes, your your um, the, the clarity in your eyes. And that, I think, what people really see, where we really see the, a, a visible change is the reduction in puffiness, those dark circles under the eyes, um, the puffiness around the eyes. And I think it's kind of a visual, if we can see what this is what we're just seeing in our face, imagine what's happening throughout our bodies. Well, and you, there you're probably ahead of the medical community because that hasn't <laughs> been, been looked at so much as a marker, you know, as a close-up photo of the face. That's a very interesting uh, idea. We had um, the first year that we, we did it where we did everybody's markers, we didn't do a photo of, the, of people. We encouraged people to take their own photo, but we didn't have a photo booth or anything set up. And we had this one guy and he said, I'm getting my picture taken, right? And we're like, no, we weren't planning on it. And he was like, couldn't believe it. He was like, you know, standing up against the wall ready for him to like get his picture taken. And so one of our team had her iPhone and she said, okay. So she snapped a photo of him and then a few other people who came behind and like wanted their pictures taken. Wow. When we did it at the end, all of them had improvement, but that one guy who really wanted his picture taken he looked like a different person. His after looked like the person that you wanted to set up with your friends <laughs> that before didn't. And it was like, wow. And that's when we said, this is stunning. You know, we're going to include this in part of our metrics to give people really kind of this full inside and out visual of what happens to their bodies during this challenge. Um, and, and the clinical trial methodologist in me, you know, evidence-based medicine, as we say, would be, well, wouldn't that be interesting to then sort of randomly assign people, get their photos. Some of them, you know, don't drink for others, continue their, and then, and then see how the, the groups compare. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. It was, and that's a nice motivator for people. You know, everybody's like, wants to, they're zooming in, they're looking at their pictures, they're looking at their eyes and all this stuff, the puffiness in their face. And then seeing that before and afters, um, I think that is a big motivator for a lot. And you and I talked a little bit earlier um, before we actually started our podcast but talking about the cultural shift that's starting to happen around alcohol and the the shift in, in attitudes around how we view it, um, tell me more kind of what you've seen on this and kind of what you see is where it's headed. Well, I think kind of the first awareness that I had was this idea of this dry January that was coming out of England a few years ago. And <clears throat> that seemed to be like, oh, there's a, you know, a social movement. So like, hey, let's just take a month off and not drink and then it, it began to snowball and really millions of people were doing it then it, it jumped over here to the united states and then these other things began to happen things like you know mocktails began to be talked about and they were like mocktail bars where people go and get these you know kind of elaborate interesting fancy you know, drinks but they don't have alcohol in them and, and that folks can go out and with friends or do something and have a mocktail don't necessarily have to have alcohol in it. So that was interesting. And then, uh, and then some of the folks I work with, some of the, uh, that are in treatment talked about this thing called sober curious, sort of a, a website or, or it's a web, um, uh, group where people can check out, Hey, we're, we just want to see what it's like to be sober for a while or something like that. So there's these, these, these different phenomena that, we really hadn't heard about before and they were sort of simultaneously beginning to happen. It kind of makes one wonder, 
is the culture starting to sort of think differently about alcohol? The thing about these challenges too, um, sober October, sober curious, dry January are alcohol free for 40. I think the thing that they all have in common is that they're relatively lighthearted challenges and it's, you know, it's a, it's a nice way for someone to dip their toe in. They don't have to make a giant commitment. They're not, you know, confessing that there's a big problem. It's not, you know, it's something that they, they're fun, they're light and it puts a positive spin on it. You know, you put fancy um, alcohol-free cocktails somewhere and, you know, call it a mocktail. One of the things that we do with our restaurants and bars throughout our regions is work with them to include, you know, the low sugar kind of eat fit, still lower sugar, but mocktails on their menu. And um, we have mocktail meetups. We have happy hour workouts, talking about replacement behaviors, you know, getting the, the group together who's all doing the alcohol-free for 40 challenge and those who can make it come into that Friday afternoon happy hour workout followed by, you know, their alcohol-free mocktail. So ways that you're putting a, a positive in versus just what you're not doing, not drinking. Yeah, no, I think it's very important. And that's really uh, some innovative and, and positive things there. Yeah, very much so. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Garbutt. I really appreciate your time with us. You're very welcome. All right. Have a great day. Hey, just a quick break to talk with you for a minute about Sunnyside. You hear me talk about it on the show often, and it really is my number one recommendation for a mindful drinking app. People use this tool in my groups, in my classes, and they tell me all the time how much they really appreciate the fact that Sunnyside is a very positive reinforcement. And what I mean by that is that when you track your drinks, and let's just say you planned for one drink and you ended up having two, if you're honest and you track that second drink, you're not going to get a message that shames you in any way or reprimands you. You're actually going to get positive reinforcement for tracking a drink that you didn't plan on and some ideas and some suggestions for going and grabbing a snack or getting some water. Sunnyside is like having a coach in your pocket, and I love that. You can try it for a 15-day free trial. Go to www.sunnyside.co slash molly to get started today. So we covered a lot about the physical effects of alcohol, those physical manifestations from anxiety to stress, impaired sleep, inflammation, covered a lot of these in depth with Dr. Garbutt. So switching gears a bit to more of our behavioral changes, um, action steps, things that we can do on that day-to-day-to-day basis throughout this Alcohol Free for 40 Challenge and beyond to really, quite frankly, make our lives a lot easier, not even just as it relates to doing the alcohol free for 40 challenge, but tuning into a lot of the, um, the reasons why we may do certain things and why we may make choices, whether it's related to alcohol or anything else that aren't best for our bodies. So I'm joined here today in my living room by Dr. Dave Galarno, board certified psychiatrist and addiction specialist with Oxner Health. He's also the medical director of the addictive behavioral unit at Oxner. And I'm also joined with us, we've got Dr. Doug Alexander. He is a second year psychiatry resident with a lengthy background of volunteerism with local recovery programs. So welcome, you guys. I'm excited to have you all here. Thanks for having us. Yes. And I say this is such a lovely living room. 
Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And we have the door open because it's a gorgeous day here in New Orleans. So we may have birds chirping in the background. I hope we do. But yeah, thank you. It's a very, very um, nice day here. Thanks. So um, talk, I guess, give us a little bit of background, each of you with what your roles are. So Dave, starting with you as um, medical director of the addictive behavioral unit and kind of what your, what your role is day to day there. Sure. Um, We have a a intensive outpatient rehabilitation program at Auctioner. People come, it's a four to six week program. Uh, They come Monday through Friday. And we really uh, try to work with people who have uh, alcohol and drug use disorders. So a little bit more significant issues than a lot of the folks who I think are doing the 40 and 40 challenge. We work day in and day out with um, the patients around how to change their behaviors and what they can do um, to kind of start a new lifestyle. And I think that those are very applicable to what the folks who are doing this challenge will be doing as well. I agree. I agree. Because for some people, 40 days seems like an eternity if they haven't done it. Yeah. Even if they're, even if they're just a casual drinker, 40 days feels like a really long time. Um, And so Douglas, tell us your, your background, kind of your role, second year psychiatry resident. That's right. I'm a second year psychiatry resident, which means um, I've gone to medical school and I'm now studying psychiatry to become a board certified psychiatrist. We rotate through several different areas of psychiatry as residents. And uh, one of those areas is addiction. Um, I have a very strong personal and professional interest in addiction. I intend to pursue um, an addiction fellowship after I finish my psychiatry residency. And I've been involved with the recovery community in the New Orleans area um, since 2007. And tell us, a, you, you shared just a little bit before we started the podcast, but a little bit of kind of what, what was the drive for you to, to go to medical school and to pursue this? So I'm in recovery myself. And, um, when I started to pursue, um, sobriety for myself, I became very involved in the recovery scene in New Orleans. And it became clear to me very soon after that, that, um, this is the community that I wanted to to work with um, in a professional capacity. And um, so I started college at Delgado, and um, now I'm here today. And for those of you who aren't in the New Orleans area, Delgado is our community college. So starting with community college courses, because you had never been to college before. That's right. I was, uh, I was 30 years old when I started college. That's incredible. And when you applied to Delgado... You, you told them that you wanted to go, you're applying to the community college with the goal of becoming a physician. Right. I walked in and said that I wanted to go to medical school and um, become a physician to work with people whose lives have been affected by substance abuse. And I was told um, that I, need, I needed to leave and come back the next day with more realistic expectations. <laughs> and they gave me a, a, a beautiful brochure about their HVAC program. Um, which is encouraged me to become an air conditioner repair technician. And you said, yeah, so you just kind of put your, put your head down focused and I, I kept my eye on the prize right. and, and pushed I, forward. To me, that's so such a cool story. And it's one of those that at that point, it seems like there's this giant mountain to climb, this giant hurdle. And now here you are like doing this and, and giving back and being able to care for people in that way that you are. So I think that's incredible. I've had a chance to work with Doug for the last month on the service, and I can tell you he's a true natural, and the addiction community is very lucky to have him, yeah. and we're looking forward to him joining our ranks uh, in the near future. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So talking about the, um, with alcohol, 
there's so many people respond to alcohol differently. And I think as people are listening to this, you know, both of you guys, you know, as, as your role, as, um, psych resident, as your role with Oxner, with the, um, rehab program, y'all are again, dealing with, um, more serious addictions than what, you know, and a lot of people who are listening to this are like, Molly, come on, I'm just doing the 40 day challenge. I have a glass of wine every day. I'm giving this up for 40 days. We totally get that. But for a lot of people, there's that slippery slope where a little bit over time becomes habitual and they do feel like 40 days is an eternity to give up alcohol. Some people do have that question mark about, can I, or what's my, how, how much do I feel like I need alcohol versus I'm choosing to have it? What happens, uh, I guess, that slippery slope and how are people differently? How are wired differently, hardwired in our brains? And how do we all respond differently to something like alcohol? Well, one thing I'll just jump in with first is that, you know, 40 days that can seem like a, a really long time. And, and when we work with our, our patients, we try to get them to break it down into more manageable chunks. No one can predict the future and no one knows what's going to happen. Um, but we try to focus on one day at a time. And, you know, if you think about, okay, I'm going to give up alcohol for 40 days, and that seems a, a really long period of time. But if you say, well, I'm going to wake up today and I'm not going to drink today and just worry about today and then we'll wake up tomorrow and see what tomorrow holds. Um, that's a good place for people to start as they face this challenge, I think. And we'll be talking about replacement behaviors coming up too and kind of some of those, those things to put in. So as you do wake up and say, okay, I'm not going to drink today, thinking of what we'll be doing instead. But before that, with, with our brains, are there some people who, I guess we always, you know, know that there's people who have it. Alcoholism, for example, runs in their family and you feel like every uncle or aunt kind of has this addictive, um, you know, has had a history of addiction. Are there certain personality? Is it personalities that are more addictive or type, or is it what's happening in our brains with alcohol? What, what's something just to kind of understand why with the same environment, one person keeps that balance, that moderation, and that's easy peasy. Others feel like they're kind of going down that slippery slope, same conditions. We all cope with things in different ways. And some people are prone to reaching for external things to change the way that they feel. And um, that's one of the things that contributes to it. I know that, um, that you know, throughout life we have different stresses, you know, social stresses that we face, different changes in work. And, um, and alcohol, as, as we all know, it's uh, something that, some people drink because it tastes good. Other people drink it because it helps take the edge off. And when that taking the edge off component of drinking, when a person starts to kind of over rely on that and incorporate it into a, a daily routine, it becomes a regular coping mechanism. And that's, um, that's when things get a little bit risky is when the person becomes to re you know, rely on it for that reason. And I like to think also um, a nature and nurture model. And some people... When we refer to um, nature, we refer to things like genetic predisposition. There's definitely uh, some of us, unfortunately, whose genetics are lined up against us and, and are more predisposed to addictive behavior and personality. Um, and so they kind of more easily fall into these kind of uh, problematic um, drinking and drug use behaviors. Uh, other people, um, you know, it, it, it has more to do with the environment and um, 
the the more that you tend to be around it and that you have exposure to it, it can get linked up in your in your brain through a reward pathway um, that uh, uses a neurotransmitter called dopamine. But most people they have some combination of the two, um, and, and if that you have really both, was what set them off. Both becomes that recipe for. Um, I don't want to say disaster, but both can be that recipe that kind of creates that perfect storm if you're genetically predisposed and you're in an environment. Would people who are genetically predisposed to something like, um, you know, being sensitive to the effects of alcohol or sensitive, more prone to addiction, would that be also the people who kind of have what they would define themselves as extreme personalities that they kind of do everything to excess, whether it's exercise or, you know, whatever it is, um, digital social media people who kind of whether it's alcohol or other things in their lifestyle i guess if if they have extreme behaviors in other areas of their lifestyle are many of them also more prone to kind of having the addictive component for things like alcohol i think that people who have a lot of um, maybe compulsive behaviors or um, almost behaviors that are similar to addiction in other ways like exercising a whole lot or you know being workaholics you do see a lot of comorbidity with alcohol use and in that population, but that's not to say that everybody who uses alcohol um, to excess or is extreme in every part. Exactly. Right? I think that the, the issue is that when it comes to the genetic side of, of alcoholism and drug addiction, that there's probably just a, a large number of genes that are involved. It's not the same as sort of like you have either blue eyes or brown eyes. There's probably you know, 10, 20, maybe even more genes. And so you can have a real, it's a real diverse cohort of people. And so some people do kind of display what we call cross addiction or, you know, an addictive personality where they can easily transition from one substance to another type of behavior, whereas other people just tend to be more focused. They have problems with one particular substance or, or something like eating. And then and that seems to be an isolated issue for them. It's interesting you brought up eating um, in past years for the alcohol free for 40. Some people's markers for things didn't improve like we thought they would, or especially like when we do body composition. And it was like when they came in for their post challenge labs, true confessions were coming out because they've been hitting the ice cream, they've been hitting the sweets and really kind of putting these replacement behaviors that were not good. And so much so that we started encouraging almost like a 2.0 version of alcohol free for 40, where it included also, sugars and white carbs, let's pull that out because, you know, we don't want to put one one behavior in for the other. So when we're looking at, okay, whether you're doing this 40-day challenge with our Alcohol Free for 40 or you're listening to this podcast at some other time of the year and you think, you know what, I'm going to kind of give it a go for 10 days, 20 or do your own 40-day challenge. What are some of the, the key strategies that you would say, you know, where do they start? Where do we start to be successful as possible throughout this? One common um, acronym that's used a lot in 12-step meetings is HALT, H-A-L-T, which stands for Hungry, Angry, Lonely, Tired. So just maintaining a state of awareness throughout the day and checking in with ourselves um, to make sure that we're not pushing ourselves past the limit. Because a lot of times, you know, with work, we feel like we're pressured to meet a certain deadline or maybe uh, we want to impress somebody socially. And sometimes when we're doing those things, we'll deny ourselves of basic things like food, um, not consciously. It's just something that happens. And 
And I also um, try to get my patients to think a little bit about, um, you know, to think optimistically, but to plan pessimistically. That, um, you know, we want people to be motivated. This is a very doable thing. This is not rocket science. You know, we're, we're asking you to just, you know, not pick up a can or a glass and put it to your mouth and swallow. Having, <laughs> sa- having said that. It's very you know, basic <laughs> if we think of it, it's, right? It's a very basic thing. Um, but it, there's this, a Zen quality to it because it can be one of the hardest things for, for some people to do. Um, and so we try to get people to think about when you have those moments where you really feel an urge or craving, what is a plan that you can have in place that you don't have to think about that you've, you've already kind of thought through and that you can easily put that plan into action if you need it. One of the things that I call it as we kind of communicate and we have our, our Facebook social support with our um, alcohol free for 40 group and emails with them. And so there's a lot of kind of camaraderie. And one of the things that we talk about a lot, I call it the witching hours for people. And, and you guys, I guess you, you all are the experts in this, but I see those witching hours often for people are in their periods of transition. So the transition time for when they're ending work and coming into their home life in the evening or they're going into a social situation and they're using turning, you know, using alcohol as the example, but alcohol is to unwind when they get home. Or if they're going out, it's to take the edge off. So they might feel like they're releasing the stressors from that day so they can be more fun in the social situation. But I feel those transition periods are what I call the witching oh. hours. Yeah. And, and and we refer to that as something called people, places, and things. And um, everyone I think is familiar from psychology 101 about the story about Pavlov's dog, how you know, um, you, you, know, you, you take a dog and you ring a bell and you give it a treat and you do that enough times. And, um, you know, just ringing the bell, the dog will start to salivate because, uh, there's a molecule, a little molecule in our brain called dopamine, which I mentioned earlier, which is in the dog's brain as well. And, um, it gets paired up with cues. And so what, if you tend to drink, you know, and the transition from work to home, or if you tend to be a, a person who goes out on a Friday night and drinks, your brain is already linked up to that, either that person or that place or that time. And it starts to secrete a little bit of dopamine to, to get you ready. The reward is coming. Uh, and so it, the urges can be a lot more difficult during those periods. And so to try to go through and look at what are the, what are the times or the situations, the people that you typically would drink with and plan for those, those situations because those are going to be potentially the hardest for people. I remember when I did my first alcohol free for 40 challenge and I've, I've mentioned this is our fifth year doing it. So it's, it's, you know, now I feel like an old pro at it, but I remember the first time we went to dinner and it was like day one or two of, of the alcohol free for 40 challenge. And I remember that I ordered a bottle of sparkling water and I asked them to bring a wine glass with it. That felt like getting those words out of my mouth instead of saying, oh, I'll have a glass of wine or whatever, whatever the norm was to say, I'll have a bottle of sparkling water and can you please bring a wine glass with it? It felt like every word was like forced coming out. It was so unnatural. And then once I got it in front of me, though, I thought, wow. And then five minutes in, it was a non-issue. But it was that little that moment of like point of decision making, pushing through it. And then once you get through it, it's smooth. Um, that kind of, as you said, planning for these people, places, things that can feel, uh, feel like that's where you've typically drink and that's where you associate drinking with 
Um, I encourage the replacement behaviors, like you said, so you're planning for it and what are you going to do instead? So some of the things that we have um, is what are you going to drink instead? And so we have people that if they're drinking, you know, scotch every day to just expect them to switch to water isn't going to work. But what are you going to have in that place that's going to maybe give you, and it might work. I mean, but for a lot of people, they're going to want something different. And so um, I've talked about this guy a lot. We had this one interesting guy. He was, we call him our 83 year old scotch drinker. Now he's probably 87, (laughs) but he did it. And he had never done the alcohol free for 40 challenge. He drank so much scotch every single day that when he stopped drinking scotch, they thought their ice maker was broken because it was overflowing, but it was actually just because he was not putting his ice in there. Um, but he switched to kombucha and he had never had kombucha in his life. And our, at our alcohol free for 40 kickoff party, we have things like all the different flavors of kombucha by Big Easy Bucha, our local brewery, so that people can try it, taste it. And you can make kind of fancy mocktails with it, but also just that poured into a glass feels like something a little bit more substantial. That's, that's, um, that's something that is very helpful in the early days of not drinking is, um, for example, if you go to a restaurant, um, when the server comes around, self-identify as a non-drinker saying, you know, I'm not going to, I don't drink. So what other types of beverages do you have? And in addition to being able to drink something, um, without alcohol in it, you've kind of framed yourself as somebody who's not going to be drinking and it makes it a little bit easier to get through the meal without having that thought of maybe I should. In something like the alcohol free for 40 challenge, people have been able to say we have these wristbands that when people come to our kickoff event, it says hashtag alcohol free for 40 on these bright orange little, you know, those wristbands that everybody has for different stuff. And um, so they can they'll, they'll kind of point to it. Oh, I'm doing alcohol free for 40. I'm not. So it's still kind of light and they feel comfortable saying that, but pointing to the wristband or kind of acknowledging that. And then the people with them are like, oh, and then that also kind of starts that conversation. Um the other, I guess, replacement behaviors, you know, what are things that you guys have found successes in? For some, they've, you know, people share that meeting friends, instead of meeting friends for a drink, meeting friends for a walk and talk, you know, what are other things that, and, and things that are getting you out of the space that you would typically be drinking? Um, I also, this is maybe sort of related, maybe a little, a little bit different, but um, I think you need to think of replacement behaviors also in in a sense of uh one of the as as doug said you know with the halt acronym hungry um angry angry lonely and tired the lonely the boredom you know so sometimes what the issue is is that if you have large swaths of time that aren't filled uh, you're a little bit more likely to fall into cravings and negative thinking and so sometimes it's it's just putting in activities that you don't normally do. Um, so that's something to think about as well. Many people have shared that they feel so much more productive during alcohol free for 40 because that three hours that maybe they were drinking in the evening with someone sitting on the porch or dinner and then led to hours after. And then maybe also they weren't feeling so great in the morning. So they didn't, you know, get up as early, but the things that they're able to accomplish or maybe tasks or projects around the house that they have not felt like they had the time to get to, they actually do. They just weren't taking the time. And so some of these creative projects that we think, man, I should, I want to do something with those things or organize this or create something or start a pottery class. And I'm glad you brought the pottery class because um, you know, sometimes also if you, if you do an organized activity, that's not the fo- the focus isn't drinking. And then sometimes that could be difficult in New Orleans, but if you're going to a pottery class or you're, or there's a 
group run or um, you know, you're going to go to a movie or tour a museum. Um, that, that's something that, you know, you don't have to worry about the social aspect of meeting someone. What are we going to order? How's that going to work? So putting yourself in other places mm-hmm. and things that you're finding interesting anyway, and maybe just haven't felt like we had the the window of space in our day, yeah. but now using that. I think you're right though, that lonely, or even if you don't really identify it as feeling lonely, but it's empty time. Mm-hmm. Mindfulness is another great um, way to fill time because it not only fills time, but it also the process of mindfulness, meditation, um, through the course of learning truths about oneself, it, um, that very process is something that makes getting through the day without drinking easier. Um, when we become more aware of our feelings and the relationship between maybe our feelings and what we do, our behaviors... And I think people should view the 40 days as, you know, not just you're giving up something, but hopefully you're getting something in, in return. And, and, you know, I know you've already focused a little bit on the health aspects that you're getting, but I think you're also, you're getting time and, and, and maybe you get a chance to try things out that you normally wouldn't do. Learn a little bit something about yourself that you didn't know, maybe find a new hobby or a new activity. And if you try to build that in as a growing period that that can be really helpful for people too. And like you said, the mindfulness and kind of tuning into these, um, tuning into that, that self-awareness. And I think as you're going through these 40 days, paying attention to these other little micro benefits through the day that, you know, it might be that you're sleeping better through the night, that you're seeing the physical benefits, your face isn't as puffy, your, your mood is better, you're dealing with stressors better. Um, like I mentioned earlier, you know, for myself personally, experiencing less um, anxiety type reactions. And I think if we look at, you know, it seems like a big, a big um, vast goal, but if we start to look at each day, here's all the benefits that I'm experiencing, it can make it easier for that next day to kind of follow. One of the things that we've added in to Alcohol Free for 40 is happy hour workouts. And so doing different workouts led by different instructors, but at like 530. So that we're coming there, we're doing that, followed by something that's an alcohol-free fluid replacement hydration after. Right. And workouts are great because they get the natural endorphins in our in our brain kicking up. And that can make us feel pretty good, just the way that a glass of wine sometimes for certain people can make them feel good. So it could be a little bit of a natural replacement. And I think that's where the walking comes in. That's one of the big kind of saviors for people, whether it's walking their dog, walking with someone, because even if you feel like, okay, I'm not by a gym, I don't, I'm not a big workout person, even just moving, like Dave said, is going to elicit these endorphins and kind of help us with that. So what about, um, people, we sometimes just say hashtag people, but what about people who say you're doing what, or like, come on, just some, or, you know, you're doing the, a lot of people are like, do weekends count (laughs) or do Sundays count? Everyone's kind of looking for that little edge at times. How to deal with the people that whether they realize it or not, are leaving us feeling pressured to drink. I, I think that it helps to be polite, but clear about what the intention is. So Rather than saying, oh, I don't really think I want to drink today, instead of that, say, well, I'm not going to drink today and make good eye contact when it's said. And um, another way that it can be done is to blame it on somebody else. So, you know, I, I told my partner that I'm not going to be drinking or for 40 I'm doing alcohol free for 40. It. Right. And I'm doing alcohol free for 40. 
And, um, you know, if, if they found out that I drank tonight, they'd be really mad. Right. <laughs> so um, that's another way. Yeah. And I like, like you said, blaming it on something else if you feel like it. But I think uh, I kind of look at it in the same way when people come to us for nutrition, for weight loss. When someone looks at food and they say, I can't eat that, well, that doesn't feel very good. But if it's more like, I'm choosing not to, or, but I have all these other things that I can eat and I am eating versus focusing on what we quote, can't eat. I think the same thing with drinking. If we, if we go into it saying, oh, I can't drink or I'm not supposed to drink versus, oh, I'm doing the alcohol free for 40. Just that little shift in how we say it also is affecting our mindset. One's woe is me. The other's a positive. I'm doing this thing. And, and although, there may perhaps be some awkward situations. I think by and large, you know, when I work with the patients, um, we tend to build it up in our own minds more than it really is. Most people don't really recognize if you're drinking or not, and um, and they don't really care. And, uh, you know, certainly in high school, there's a lot of pressure sometimes. But once you're, you're an adult, that really does seem to drop off. And when you do run into pressure, often what you'll find is maybe that person who's doing the pressuring maybe has a little bit of an issue themselves. And people that tend to pressure, you know, are looking maybe for a buddy because then that sort of, you know, justifies to some degree their own behavior that maybe they don't want to take a closer look at. Um, But for the most part, when people don't really struggle with alcohol, they don't really think about it too much. What you just said, I, I, I kind of want to like frame all of those words and put them up on a big poster <laughs> because I think that that's very true. For starters, most people just don't care. And a lot of times we go through life thinking, oh my gosh, did I offend that person or did I do this? Or that person had something was wrong. What did I do for that? And usually nine times out of 10 has nothing to do with us. It's yeah. all about them. People are so concerned with what they've got going on in their life. They don't care what we're doing. Mm-hmm. But I think exactly what you've said is, the people who do care and are the ones pressuring us to drink, a lot of times they're looking for someone to drink with. And it can have leave them feeling a little bad about themselves if they feel like they're the only ones drinking. I've We have friends like that. And so um, especially through something like Alcohol Free for 40, if we're at events um, and there's something, you know, I'll do a Virgin Bloody Mary because you can't tell at all if it is or isn't. And you've just got something in your hand. And you're not making a big to-do of it. You're not even making this big, bold statement for those people who you know are kind of the pushers, for lack of a better word. I mean, I think it's a very compelling reason to say that, you know, I've been thinking a lot about my health and I want to see if subtracting alcohol out for a period of time makes me a healthier person. And it's it's hard to argue with that, um, you know, and I think most people would pretty readily accept that as a reason. Yeah, great point. Your Bloody Mary recommendation is on point because I love mixers. I don't drink anymore, but I I do love mixers. So it that's uh, something that um, is very helpful. It's just to I love a, a club soda with a splash of cranberry, and, and it looks fancier. I have it in my hand, and I feel like I fit in, and nobody has to know. Versus a bottle of water, which just looks pitiful when everyone else <laughs> is drinking, and you're it's it's broadcasting it. Whereas if you have a glass of something, one of the cool things is that some local restaurants and bars are offering Eat Fit mocktails throughout, specifically throughout Alcohol Free for Forty, and we have those places listed on our website um, to guide people to because it's kind of cool. Like you know, you can go there and you've got this to fall back on that isn't also loaded with a bunch of sugary mixers and stuff. Um, 
dealing with potential setbacks. So if someone says, man, I, I had my game plan on, I, I planned, as you said, um, plan up, how did you say it? Think optimistically, but plan pessimistically. So if they've done this and they've kind of put all these things in place, but still the temptation got the best of them, what do you recommend? How to, how to deal with if there is that potential setback? Don't let the setback define you. Um, that's, it is what it is. And today is a new day and the first day of the rest of our lives. So um, let it be what it is and pick up and, and keep going forward. Yeah, I think sometimes we we when we build things up uh, all or nothing in in our head. Um, there can be a tendency to well, now I ruined it, so let's just go overboard. Uh, and you know, what I think people need to keep in mind behavioral change is hard. You know, the average amount of times it takes to quit smoking successfully is seven tries. And so, um, if you're tackling something big like behavioral change, uh, and you have a, a slip up, um, that's okay. Um, just pick yourself up and you, and you go forward. Um, it doesn't detract from, you know, if you go 38 out of 40 days without having a drink, well, that's, you know, that's a pretty big deal. I mean, that's 38 days you didn't have a drink and that's definitely going to contribute to your health. So trying to reframe it from an, you know, getting away from an all or nothing thinking to, you know, an improvement in your health and that you're doing the best you can. You're human like everyone else. And not letting that define and let it, you know, if that one slip up, you kind of throw in the towel, like you said, well, now that's the issue because it's, you know, we're, we're, we're letting that um, derail us more and more and more. But if that's one slip up and you've got 38 days and you're looking that you want to see your lab markers and all these at the mm -hmm. end, your two days are probably not going to wreck your results. Yeah, exactly. Also a great opportunity for self-discovery. You know, what was I feeling when that happened? Um, maybe I can I can learn from this and learn more about myself um, because of because of the slip up. I think some of those questions can be the hardest pe things for people to look into, you know, because a lot of times and I think that's huge and very I'm glad you said that because it wasn't something that was in my head for us to talk about. But when we do look at why did I have that setback? why did I have that struggle or that challenge? That's the things that can lead to that sometimes are the hardest for us to admit to ourselves because it might be the people closest to us, the things that we hold, hold the things or people closest to us. And that's a hard thing to admit sometimes and to what, ourselves. And when we take what we learn from that experience and then we go back to the drawing board to our plan and then edit our plan accordingly, you know, being mindful of people, places and things and the triggers and, oh, now we discovered this is a trigger. I didn't thought about that. And then that can help us move forward. I found a lot of times it's um, relationships around us and some of that sometimes it's, you know, people that you you can't you can't and don't want to not have in your life. I mean, if they drive you crazy, but if that person is your mom, you know, like <laughs> got to figure out a way to deal with this without wanting to to have that. So but I do think that really, like you said, Yes, it was a setback, but using that to explore the why behind it and kind of what's driving that, I think that takes us the benefit of if we can kind of get under some of those and understand our reactions and help manage those better in the future, that's like a success well beyond this 40-day challenge. And it's important to keep in mind that we're not talking about weaknesses or personal faults or defects or anything like that, rather just truths about ourselves and knowledge is power and learning who we are and what we stand for and how we react to the world around us. When we become more aware of that, 
we become more capable of being, um, you know, of loving ourselves, loving other people and doing what we need to do at work and with our families. I couldn't have said it better. I think if anybody is listening and has wondered, am I, am I not going to do the alcohol free for 40? I think when you start to do it, (laughs) when you kind of think of all these, it's these whole body, whole body benefits, but for our body, our mind, our spirits as well. They're all, they're all connected in, in one, mind, body, and spirit. All right. Anything else, you guys, that we would want to add in, kind of a final takeaway? Uh, just uh, that, you know, as, as we mentioned before, you know, most people who are going to take this challenge um, are, are not uh, the folks that, that we work with, you know, day in and day out at Auctioner. But some, some of you may be. And if you find uh, the challenge uh, pretty challenging and, and difficult and maybe you're unable to complete you know, think about coming and, and working with us, uh, you know, in our intensive outpatient rehab program. Um, we'd really love to help help you out um, and really feel like we could. And we'll have um, the information for that um, website, email number, and our podcast episode notes. Just to echo on what, what you said, um, if this is very difficult to stay sober for 40 days and if you feel like... Um, you know, you're struggling with alcohol. New Orleans is an amazing city to get sober in. Um, we have a, a very lively and vibrant recovery community here because alcohol is so ingrained in our culture in New Orleans. Um, we have we have to have a very vibrant and lively recovery community here. So it's a really cool city to, to be sober in. It's really amazing to look forward to doing Mardi Gras sober, to going to Jazz Fest sober, to going to French Quarter Fest sober. I mean, these it's an amazing city to be sober in. We have some really great resources like the ABU at Oshner and really strong recovery in our 12-step community as well. And we'll have links to all of these things. We'll have links to the Alcohol Free for 40 website. We'll have links to the sites that Drs. Dave and Doug uh, mentioned as well. And you guys, thanks so much for, you know, I've learned and been inspired from y'all. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Alcohol Minimalist Podcast. This podcast is dedicated to helping you change your drinking habits and to create a peaceful relationship with alcohol. Use something you learned in today's episode and apply it to your life this week. Transformation is possible. You have the power to change your relationship with alcohol now. For more information, please visit me at www.mollywatts.com.